Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Two Nights Podcast. It's episode one in season two, and our first guest is Senator Lynn Rowan. Hello, Senator Lynn. How are you? I'm good. Very good. Thanks I'm so much for being Cork. We're <laughs> delighted to have you. Thanks a million for coming to Churchfield, uh, mm. North West Cork City. Yeah. Back at Timmy's Gaff. I, know. <laughs> I felt so at home driving in. I was like, ah. Yeah, yeah. we knew you would. Horses yeah. over there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope the dogs, no one's that back. Yeah, that's it. It's horses and sulkies <laughs> and scramblers and all that, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. as we said, yeah, um, when we were in correspondence, there's a lot of similarities between Tala and this area. Um, can you tell us a little about Tala and maybe your years, your early years? Yeah. So, um, so Tala obviously is it's huge. So when we when we talk about looking at spaces that are similar, it's kind of Tala West that would be more similar to where we are now. Um, like Dublin South County Council is the most uh, affluent, richest county council, but it has some of the the poorest estates in the whole country. You know, so um, statistically, it can look like it has plenty of money, but it definitely doesn't. Um, or else it's not funneled towards us in West Tala. Um, so I grew up. I grew up in Kilnarden in Tala. Um, I suppose like anyone, like I, the rest of the world didn't exist for me. It was just me and me estate mm. and me friends and. Um, I was a big, like, I loved soccer. I was a big Man United fan. I was yeah. a tomboy. I was... You're in Man United territory here, aren't you? Oh, my God, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I was... I, I kind of... Um, my early years felt good, you know. I didn't know any different. And um, I came from quite a solid household, um, which wouldn't have been... Um, probably the same for like lots of my friends there was quite a, a lot of diversity so you had families that were in a position I suppose to like walk or go on little holidays to Tremor in the summer I suppose I fitted into that camp so I was I had safety within my home so um my mom and dad um my mom and dad went out to work most days my mom was a machinist um and my dad worked in 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 the same factory pressing clothes he was um he was a big sportsman, like so. He played like League of Ireland football, and he was a referee until in his sixties. So we, we were always quite a sporting family, mm-hmm. um, and there was no kind of addiction around in the household. Mm-hmm. So we got to do the normal things like giant clubs, and and I realised m- much later on, and um, that maybe some of that stood to me being able to step outside of the kind of chaotic behaviour I would also be involved in mm-hmm. within the estate, and. Um, I suppose school wasn't great for me. Um, I was, I know I was intelligent, um, but if I didn't see the point in something or the logic in something, I kind of dismissed it and, you know, that would cause conflict mm. or I'd ask too many questions or, mm. you know, too inquisitive, um, you know, or if I thought something was silly, I'd 
be yeah. saying it, you know. So obviously that doesn't go down well in school. Um, and there's only so much of your character being kind of battered down in school where you then say, ah, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. want nothing to do with this, mm. you know. Um, but I, I, I still, I, I said I was primary school was fine for me. Secondary school was a bit different, you know. I think that's that can happen for a lot of kids. Yeah. Like you go from having the same people that you know mm. your entire life to all these yeah. new... It was the same for me in primary yeah. school. was fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a mixed school. It was in around the corner from my house. And then I went to an all-boy secondary school, Christian Brothers, in another area. I hated it. I, it's very hard to make that transition. It's, you know? totally it's a big change. It's and under, then, I think we underestimate how yeah, hard it is. And you're coming into puberty as well. Yeah. There's a lot going on for you yeah. at that time. And secondary school was a nightmare for me. Yeah. You also have to find your group mm-hmm. that you fit in with. Yeah. You know, and... Um, like uh, on your book, I see the group that you fit in with. You fit in with people that you can actually feel comfortable around, and I that's 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 what happened to me. I felt very very comfortable around certain people, and uh, that's what really got me through it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing would really change. Totally. Like I mean, yeah. people always ask me as to things about my life I changed, and I like I always remember a counsel my counselor that I had for years, and um, Tommy. His name wasn't his name is, and he would say to me, um in terms of like, you know, when people ask you, have you any regrets? What would you do differently? And even though I caused chaos throughout my life and, and obviously I hurt people and I hurt my mom and dad and stuff, but he, he kind of taught me to accept all those parts of myself because I, I, I was only a little girl and I was using the resources and tools that I had at the time to survive or to fit in or to mm. get by. And obviously my intention at the time wasn't to hurt anybody but I could only work with what I had and I could only work within the environment in which I was in and that it was still that young girl that made the decisions that led you to here. So if you begin regretting who she was, where where would you be at all? Yeah, like, you exactly, know? like where we are in our lives now after not being through some troubled yeah. years and, and addiction and stuff. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world because the person I am today is so happy and content with my life yeah. and the knowledge and experience and character that we've built through the hardship I wouldn't change it. For the, maybe there's certain regrets I might have. I might have done some sort of stuff differently, like. But I wouldn't have wished an easy life, you know, because you don't get that character. No, no. What what that life does is pushes you into this life. You know, you have to go through all that hardship, really. Mm. You know, all that pain and suffering and the loneliness. You know, the loneliness that you feel when you're on your own, when nobody wants you anymore. After you know, just yeah. just being arrogant with all your family, but. I understand yeah. completely, yeah. Yeah, like, and I think then there's kind of a balance to be struck with, between, because I think sometimes then I have to remind myself that it's really easy for, say, for me or for you to go, we don't regret that. Mm. But then if I was to ask some of my friends who are still living in the same life, they do regret it. And I'm like, mm. okay, so the, the difference between me and them is that I managed to step out of it. So I think the biggest thing is how do you make it possible for everybody to be able to be in the position you're in where you don't regret it, you know? And I think for me, I think sometimes like, you know, yeah, I really have to remind myself, right, Lynn, you don't regret it and you wouldn't change a thing. But if you were still like on drugs, if you were still robbing cars, you would have all the regrets in the world because, you know, you're saying you've no regrets from quite a position of privilege not in the general societal sense but privilege in terms of air own working class sense yeah. you know that kind of way i think that mm-hmm. people like ourselves that have been through the mill and we're thriving you now 
Do you think that we can be used as a rod to beat the people that haven't been able to step out of it? You know, we've a lot of friends still in addiction and still, you know, in the depths of it. Like we were, we're lucky enough that we got our break. Um, and I think sometimes that we can be. Uh, why can't you do what James and Timmy mm. is doing? But we're all different. Yeah. We all have different challenges. Exactly, and I think that that's one thing that I've always tried to push back against is being heralded as some sort of, um, you know, weapon against your own community. Mm. And I think that can happen a lot with anyone that succeeds. But the thing is, none of us should be a story. Like it shouldn't be. Oh, look at these small few particular people were lucky enough to get a break mm. thereby why didn't anyone else do it yeah. but the thing is we got a break or we used the skills that we had to try and take the break when we seen it but that's that's not the same as everybody starting from the same social floor and having the same access to life and the same access to reach mm. your full potential do you know what I mean yeah. so we shouldn't be anomalies it should be so normal for people not to end up in addiction in the masses and the way they do in their communities. It should be normal that we don't, um, you know, see education as some sort of triumph, like yeah. that it actually it's just a normal yeah. thing for us to a do. Tri- see a triumph, a triumph in areas like your own and our own is, and I know you speak about this, if your son doesn't end up on drugs, mm-hmm. like if it's, you're minimising, oh, he only smokes hash, you're doing well. Yeah. He's only having a few cans, you're doing well. Yeah. He's after getting to the leaving sort, you're doing well. The bar is very yeah. low, like. Yeah. And because mothers are just struggling and yeah. they, may, they may have three or four siblings there, might be on their own and a lone parent and their job is put roof on the roof overhead and food on the table. And if they're, you know... Or even just being told, like, I'd just be happy if you even just got a trade yeah. or a job. You know, you're setting that standard there where yeah. the potential is, yeah. you know, limitless. Society thinks that that's because say we don't care about thriving or succeeding or we don't want to do well but actually what we do is we've told ourselves for years there's only so much that we can achieve so we should only aim for that rather than our kids being disappointed like do you know what I mean like Mm. it's like um you know because we know we don't know anyone that's a pilot or you know our next door neighbor isn't a psychiatrist you know or a consultant or whatever you know we choose then to try and go, well, what's the safest possible option for my child? You know, like some, like, I, like there's some, there's like Halloween in our communities. I still get it like a, you know, a little store in me, like, you know, one is excitement, but one is also, I wonder is everyone going to be alive in the morning, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, and when you're, when that's a successful day for a family in a community, yeah. You know, it's very hard to think about mm-hmm. education or degrees or, know. you know, better jobs. It's like, can I get through Halloween night without yeah. my child being the one that comes home with a stab wound mm-hmm. or something? Yeah. Do you know Halloween what I mean? night was always a mad night for me. Mental. My, my birthday is Halloween night. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween. extra mad. Yeah. Oh, Halloween night. <laughs> Halloween night is a night of chaos. We have two yeah. nights in Cork. We have Halloween night is in October, obviously, and bonfire night, which yeah. is 23rd of June. And there okay. are two nights where it's like the purge. All bets are off. There's no rules. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you were talking about there about um, in communities where you've no doctors or psychiatrists or vets or whatever. Um, and I hear you speaking before about um, like sometimes I'd hear people maybe not from around here. You have Susie grants now, and you've all these grants, and why can't everybody go to college like you? Um, but it's not as simple as that, and no, it's, it's not, not just it's about not financial. It's not. No. Um, so if you would maybe yeah, for the people that's watching, so, tell us about maybe the you know the cultural capital, yeah, the social, social capital. capital. Yeah, so like it's so um, 
first of all, if you've told yourself for years that something is not for you, it's very hard to come around to the idea. It's quite frightening. Like, you know, I watch kids in Dublin from Tala and the idea of getting a bus every day to one of the colleges in the city centre feels like a really, really big thing because you've, you've, you've literally grown up in a fishbowl, you know, and you own the only estates you recognise are the ones that are like on a bus route that you've taken to a particular place, you know, a few times. Like, uh, like I knew like from my house to Mount Joy on the bus, like I that was the longest journey I knew. I knew what buses to get, you mm. know, I knew what parts of the roads I couldn't like roll joints on because you'd lose <laughs> it at the back of the bus. <laughs> like that was like, you know, that was the biggest journey I would do in my day mm. to visit friends and St. Pat's and stuff. So the idea of going every day into this world of college and academia can seem like something really foreign. Like people mm. always used to say to me, like be a bit confused when I'd say I don't feel Irish. Like I don't feel like I have a national um, identity. Mm-hmm. I feel very much like I'm Tala and that's mm. all I am, you know, because I couldn't connect with anything outside of that. Yeah. Um, Cause I had no experience of anything outside of that. And so that's, that's, that that's one thing that can be wrapped up in social and ca- cultural capital, but also um, being able to um, engage with academia, engage with different types of language and the vocabulary. And, you know, you we have a very particular dialect and we only learn so much in schools. And some of our schools can be a bit like crisis management more than actually flourishing education, yeah. like, you know. Um, so we don't grow up reading particular texts or studying particular um, subjects. Like if you want to be an engineer in Tala, um, the likelihood that you can access the software. So the like private schools or schools that have better resources use all the same software and stuff and buy the software that you would use in, in say Trinity if you were studying engineering. So you know what that looks like where air schools have to take anything that's free so they can so there's no there's no natural kind of progression from air schools into college that looks the same so that can be quite frightening you know accents feeling different feeling like you you know you don't belong feeling like a fraud like my dad grew up around the corner and like when my uncle Noel was over from England when I was elected um president of students union trinity he grew up in the tenements force on Usher's Quay which is literally you know a stone's throw away from trinity and at 80 years of age, he stood in front square saying to me, oh, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe yeah. I was never in here before. Yeah. Dublin man, like, you know, know, and you're like, what the but hell? But even, even UCC is not far from here. Yeah. It's down, down Sunday as well over the shaky bridge or in UCC. Yeah. It's about 10 minute walk. Yeah. But it may as well have been a million miles away. And totally. I've said that before. Like, it's like a force field is around. I always explain yeah. it as like the Simpsons. You remember in the Simpsons movie yeah. when that globe comes over and they're all trying yeah. to figure out how to get yeah. out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like... Susie Grant right oh yeah right okay I'll apply for Susie how do I do that and then they go and they don't understand the form and then they go to their mom and they say to their mom can you help me do that and the mom's like oh I, I don't know ask your auntie whatever like because they're petrified because it's like there's this information deficit this fear of all these forms yeah. you know and everybody just ends up pawning pawning yeah. it off and it's not because they don't care it's because they're actually afraid to say i actually don't know what this is asking of yeah. me i don't yeah. know how to fill this out i don't know how to get all these forms that you need you know or some people don't even know that the Su- Susie grant exists mm. Or they struggled when they're reading it to understand what the criteria is. You know, the amount of women that ring me every year to help them, like the amount of people. And like, I can only, that's only a, like a drop in the ocean, you know. 
But and then the points is an issue, you know, yeah. people can't access college because it's set up against them from the offset. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's even, such an unequal exam to have to sit. Even the Susie alone tried to fill that out. Yeah. I, I actually had to get help because yeah. that was probably one of the first application forms I ever filled out. I yeah. never, like, I always got people to fill out uh, medical card forms and all these different things because I didn't know how to. You know, I, I don't think I even knew what the PPS number was before yeah. that, before when I uh, got sober and stuff, you know. And um, when I came across this thing, then I was baffled, mm. the Susie application. And it's just yeah. like a blur on the page. Oh, yeah. But then they ask cold. a lot of information about household income yeah. and all these things. Yeah. And like, we're afraid of all that stuff because, yeah. you know, sometimes we can't be too honest either. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you see, that's the thing. And like, I think we, we've grown up with this yeah. thing as well, that we're always doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's yes. kind of like... Yeah. You know, and the imposter syndrome then as well. Oh, I don't deserve this at all. Yeah. You know, I, when yeah. I was out in college, um, I would, like, when I was in prison, I got educated. Um, I'd done my junior short and everything else. And when I got out, I went to college and I felt so out of my comfort zone. You know, I was like the fellow on my own in the corner because... I didn't know, like it was a lot around a lot of young people, and there was some other mature They all students. seem super confident. Yeah, and they're straight out of school. Like there's this guy like, then, like and he's like the social. Like I just didn't feel like I was around my own. I was out of the fishbowl, yeah. and I wasn't around my own people. No, if you just it was just how I felt. It wasn't that I wasn't around my own people. It was just I was so used to being up here in our little bubble <laughs> and not being outside and speaking to other people it was it was very very difficult you know yeah like yeah. even like when I was in college thankfully like I had there was something about me or my character that I built over the years that I wasn't too offended by people asking me questions or people um like being a bit shocked even sometimes say by my humor it's the one I think the most like people ask about your accent in college and I'm like no but like apparently my humor is pretty fucking sick <laughs> it's like i think i laugh at like all the wrong things yeah. or all the violent things <laughs> all, and i remember we blah blah, blah yeah, yeah, the yeah. you know what i mean it's like I, that was the biggest thing that got me when people be like looking yeah. at me with this like baffled face and i'm like oh is that is, that's not funny is yeah, it not in certain places it wouldn't be like no. yeah, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean so I think like like the working class humour just sometimes has no boundaries on how dark yeah. it can go like yeah. but really intelligently dark and witty yeah. do you know what I mean I think yeah. it's one of the best sense of humours ever but in some spaces you realise how different your life experiences were you know from yeah. other people so that, I think that's what I missed the most in my day was that just having that kind of wicked kind of like sense of humour or buzz mm. with somebody like do you know what I mean although I probably if I had like some of my mates in my class with me I probably never would have got a thing done like do you yeah. know what I mean because <laughs> I think I still romanticise about my teenage years and I definitely go straight back there with my friends like do you know what I mean with the giddiness and the stories mm. and the storytelling like yeah. you know I'm 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 so much I, I have the most fun when I'm with with my working class yeah. pals. Like. Occasionally, you know, we'd meet up, um, a few of us in recovery, you know, we'd be friends from childhood. Yeah. Um, the last night, time you know, we went camping down Clowney for the night, there was about 25 of us. But we're like a lot of teenagers when we get yeah. together. Yeah. 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 Not, yeah. Everybody is comfortable. There's no judgment. We all know who we are and where we come from. Yeah. There's not, it's just a very comfortable environment and it's great to have that outlet every few months, you know, and tap back into that because we can work from the adult all the time and in, you know, in the office and in academia and, uh, and professional settings. 
but it's great to just happen to you know who we really are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, one thing you were saying there, you know, um, about about Trinity and about CIT. I remember my first day, one of my first days in UCC. I think I might have done the MSAP or something. One of the first experiences on campus, they were actually doing the election campaign for the students' union, and it was like walking through an American teen movie. I was looking at these young ones and young fellas. I was like, what the fuck is going on? It was like yeah. a totally new world yeah. to me. And then all these slogans, rolling, rolling, vote number one. And I was like, oh my God. I, I, fucking... I remember looking at them out in the CIT when they were doing the votes and stuff and they were getting up on top of the stage and there might have been about 1,500 students watching them inside in the canteen. And I was saying, was he up there talking in front of you? Like, I didn't have that kind of confidence. You know, when we were younger... We thought they were fucking idiots. Yeah. And you know what? They're, they're the people that run the country. Yeah. And you know, if I look at the young people in, in UCC today, they have the best parties, they have the best social life, they come out with good jobs. But when we were that age, we just thought that they were losers. And that was the relationship we had with UCC. And if mm-hmm. we walk through UCC when you're 16, 17, security's coming on to move you out of it. Thinks yeah. you're robbing Rob bikes, bikes and stuff like that, which probably wouldn't have been wrong we either. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a bit of truth in a stereotype, isn't there? <laughs> you have to get money to feed the habit somewhere. Like, yeah, you know, well, that's, that's, that's how it was. Yeah. yeah. But can I ask you a little bit now? Um, so you went through Trinity. Yeah. Um, you didn't just go through Trinity. You were the president of the Students' Union. I was. And out of that, you were elected to Shannon. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience, maybe your first few days in the Shannon? Were you confident going in there or did confidence grow as you went along? Yeah, I think um, I've always been quite good at, f- at faking for a period of time until yeah. it feels natural, you know. So people are always quite shocked when they realise that I've probably spent a couple of months having to like, you know, like being a bit exhausted after a few months because I've been like mentally kind of focused on going, I'm grand at this, I'm good at this. And I nobody can really tell that I'm like scared or, you know, and um I suppose in Trinity, the first time I felt I felt quite scared was the getting up and talking and asking for votes. Like um, I was like, why, why, how can I ask somebody to vote for me? It nearly felt like um, shame, mm. and I'm like, why do I feel shame asking someone to vote for me? And it was like asking people to have like confidence in me, to believe in me, to and it all. To be honest, a part of me was trying kind of rejecting that, and I was kind of like, I'm a fucking. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, why are you asking anyone for that for? You don't fucking even need to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's like I was asking them for something for nothing, like you know, with me handout or something. And it was an election, and everyone else bigging themselves up, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, what's wrong with me? I'm struggling with this. And I had never publicly spoke to that many people, like because it could be anything from like four hundred people in a lecture hall, you know. Yeah. And um, I remember being rattling inside and after the first day, my campaign manager who was from Crumlin and came through the access program with me, there was only about three of us in the campaign. By the end of it, everyone had dropped their candidates and joined their campaign. But at the start, like um, I was, I, I would, I would literally, my stomach, I would have to run for days at the top of even, oh God, I have to go and talk now and I have pains up my neck and um, and then the second day, third day, I think it was into the campaign, there's like this big kind of speech out on the dining hall steps and um, it's out in front square. And Rob said, right, let's go over your speech. And I says, no, I'm just I'm just going to go tell it on them. And he's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I'm just going to go tell it on them. Like, I'm just going to go community worker and tell it on them. At the end of the day, this is a community, isn't it? Like, aspirations are aspirations. And whether you're, whether you're, you know, whether you're upper class or working class, there is certain things that people want. Mm. And I just need to, I just need to go up and, 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 and talk about that. And I went up and I just dropped the idea of having to try and talk about these policies or what I was going to do for Trinity or da 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 and I just spoke about community and I spoke about equality and diversity and inclusion and what that means and and that just spoke to so many people because whether you were disabled or you know whether whether like whether you had a disability whether you were you know on the autism spectrum or whether you were a migrant student or whether you were you know there because you traveled from some other European country to be there there was something about in the in the speech that I gave that kind of pulled everybody in which was really quite empowering Mm. so that was the kind of most frightened I felt was the first day or two before I kind of just relaxed and was me I think I was rejecting who I was the first two days trying to sound like the other candidates or something and that made me feel really ill Mm. um and then when I went into the senate that was that was it was hard it was actually harder than going into trinity for some reason because it's so much more concentrated and there's cameras on you all the time um, I didn't know if I could stop coursing uh, for long enough to actually do a speech. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how I was going to um, dress. Yeah, I, I, you like I've seen you on the channel before wearing your yeah. Air Max and yeah. you know, showing your tattoos, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. You know? I definitely but had to push is, that, you know. Yeah, is it a hard yeah. thing to do that? Like, Yeah, it was because people are commenting on the first day yeah, or two. They're so used to a particular... Like, a suit is not my uniform, do you know what I mean? And yeah. I kind of think, like people wearing suits that's okay they're comfortable in that but like the idea that people should wear suits and work or women should wear particular types of kind of work looking dresses or trouser suits where did that even where did that come from like you know it's not it's not what I wear on a day-to-day basis it's not what I wear and what I'm comfortable in and you know I really had to push back against that and I arrived in my first day to speak in the Shannon now we'd been in for a while while the program government was being but I arrived in like this it was really sunny and I arrived in this little like summer dress with all my tattoos out but I had it was quite short as well so it meant all my leg tattoos were shown as well (laughs) so I was just like just fucking go in and embrace it and there was a couple of comments and you can see like that people are just not used to it in there you know and um I think but it kind of got it got they got used to it, um, you know. And I had I had I remember telling the story before, but I had like this reoccurring dream for about two or three nights that I bought this like Tommy Hilfiger suit in Grafton Street, and I was like navy, and it's not something I would wear. Like, mm. and uh, in the dream, I kept putting it on and going in to speak for my maiden speech in the Shannon, and I kept turning into Mickey Mouse fleecy pajamas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every time I stood up to speak and I'd run back to the office to try and put the suit back yeah. on but every time I spoke and this kept happening and I was like and that was kind of like the sign to me Jesus Lynn is there something subconscious going on here yeah. are you afraid to speak you know are you afraid that you're going to stand yeah. out or your accent sometimes I get words completely wrong yeah. you know and I've had to embrace that you know at first I used to get embarrassed like when someone would try and correct me word where now I just say yeah did you know what I meant so like fuck off like exactly. why are you correcting me for like do you know what I mean yeah. so now I had to work hard to embrace that that my dialect and um, go do you know what there's some words that I say that you know the meaning of I know the meaning of I say them differently you know and uh, I'm not going to reject that part of me you know yeah. and um, but what's funny is like you know Seb my assistant would write um speeches for me sometimes like if I if I'm too busy or if I it's not a subject that I feel that I can do justice to just speak and um like 
just just um ad lib on he would he would write but sometimes he puts in words and I'm like I get to it in the middle of the speech and I go oh my god what is that what is that word and you can say it in your head because you're used to reading it but you've never ever said it in a conversation yeah so actually you're not really sure how, yeah. how it's pronounced yeah. and they're like them moments like I've had to kind of just laugh off mm. you know but um, yeah, so was like, there ever was there ever times that you felt like you had to be like these pe- the other people in the Shannon that you had to behave in their way and speak like them? Yeah, you know? and I definitely um, there's definitely times where I have had to kind of really talk yeah. to myself. But I even got that in Trinity. Like I remember writing an economics essay once and going home before I handed it in and reading over it and going. That is the most conservative yeah. fucking essay I mm. have ever written. What's going yeah. on? And I had to scrap it and remind myself that I'm being taught in an institution that has mm. taught in a conservative or a right wing economics. You know, it's not social economics. It doesn't take into, you know, it's very clinical. It's, mm. you know, so there's there's times where you have to kind of catch yourself going Jesus, I didn't know I was got to being conditioned a little bit there, or I'm at a picking up a behaviour, or I'm at a you know. They're saying, but my friends are quick to pull me up on yeah. it, you know, and yeah. um, they're quick to kind of go, Lynn, I don't know what you're saying, mm. and I that like I I really have to watch that because my whole thing is that I don't, I'm not, I'm not middle upper class in terms of my culture, and I'm I'm uh, I'm probably not deemed as working class in terms mm. of my access or my resources or you know so but I am very much culturally still working class and I still live in Killinard and I still live in my ma's house do you know what I mean like I I'm mm. hanging on to it for dear yeah. life you know yeah. but I do exist somewhere in the middle of that and I want you know I want educated academics or you know professionals or the legal professional the judiciary or anybody I want them to understand what I'm saying and learn something from it but I also want to continue to talk in a way that my community and the people I care and love about know what the fuck I'm saying and can still relate to me so it's a very fine line to try and walk especially when you're the trinity senator but you're the woman from Tala and you're trying to manage those two worlds so sometimes I do find myself sounding or whatever or trying to behave in a different way in front of particular people but it's probably because i'm trying to cradle mm. two two sides of a kind yeah. and i'm trying to do it with like ease without pissing yeah. either side off yes. too much yeah you know because yeah. you can you can drift away from your own people when yeah. you start using yeah. the other people's language, language. you know yeah. that actually happened to me as well in in the college like it was i was leaning towards the, the professional side of construction yeah. And, I was, and I, I was getting more and more uncomfortable as I was going there. And I said, well, hold up one minute. Drag yourself back now and go yeah. back to your own community where yeah. you feel comfortable. It's not yeah. about being up here or doing all this. You know, there was one one thing I wanted to mention there. You spoke about when, when you were up in the, the stage giving the speech in, in Trinity for the election. You know, and I was thinking, and you said, I'm going to be myself. Just be myself. I'm going to go with And just something clicked into my mind. There was a section of your book where this guy just walked in into one of the, the youth centres that you worked in when you were younger. And he came in and he just said, uh, I was told to come here because of Lynn, you know, like, because I was told Lynn would look after me. And I just, oh, like, that was a, that was a lovely thing yeah. to hear. It, it actually brought a tear to my eye because, like, you were actually looked upon back then as somebody that 
you can go out to Lynn and that's 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 what I'm getting. Yeah. I'm getting a picture of your somebody that people in their com- your community can come to they'll know you'll speak to them properly. Yeah. And that must be very very nice for you to feel that way as well. Like, yeah, you know? it is. And I think um I think that's the difference between the space I'm in now and then where when I was working directly with people, you know, um, like with the lad that you talk about or anybody that I worked with in the addiction services or when I worked in the homeless services, you never found me in the office. I was always in someone's fucking getting given out to because I was in someone's bleeding bedroom or fucking pill room or TV room, you know, um, and always in the middle of the banter with the lads and getting to know them and stuff. And, um, even though their lives were in such chaos, especially as well in, 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 in the addiction field, you could see the impact that you were having, even if it was slow and incremental, but mm. you could see and you could see. But in, in politics, it's very hard to know if you're having an impact and get that same sort of feedback. Like, <clears throat> I forget what name I gave him in the book now, so I'm trying, I'm not going to name him, the one you're talking about. And um, so when he, like, he, you're getting, you're getting, on the spot feedback that you're valued or that you're good at your job or that this person you can help and it feels great to know that there was people out there directing him to me and saying you won't be rejected there because of the position you're in because he was he was getting this kind of put out of the hospital he was in severe psychosis at the time you know and um to know that he sought me out is it gives you a good feeling and I think people always are afraid to acknowledge that what we do is not some sort of selfless, heroic goal. You do get something out. If if you're the type of person that likes to help people, there is a reward for that. And you do feel good about that. And it's okay to feel good about helping people. You know, you don't have to make out that it's something selfless and you don't get anything from it. And you go home drained and, you know, you're just out there trying to save everybody, you know. <laughs> and that's not what it is at all because there's there's a part of my identity that needs... Yeah. to yeah. know that I'm helping. <laughs> but you know what as well, Lynn? You know, when you go through that life as well, you can have that little bit of compassion and yeah. empathy for the person on the other side. Yeah, and it's a lack you, of fear. You you're not exactly afraid what of people. Going through. You're not afraid of people's yeah. trauma. Exactly. And pain and madness. And, <laughs> and there's no judgment there because you could just as easily be still sitting on the yeah. other side of the chair. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that we have there is is for people that are still struggling in addiction and are still out there homeless, you know, um, you just, you have that little bit of compassion and anytime you see them, you just, like, you know what they're going through totally. and you wish them the best, and I think, I but think, you can't do nothing I, from, you know. And I think that's uh, why we're, we're failing so many people yeah. because we keep so many people, like, goes out of the careers that can help them. So, like, if the social work department in 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 Tusla mm. looked like our communities and had a load of working class men and women I think or you know therapy therapy spaces health spaces but there's not enough working class people in there so there's this big divide between people that need help and the people that are providing the help you know and they might mean well but you can mean well all you want if you can't actually relate to the group that you're trying to support yeah. it's very hard to penetrate into that space do you know yeah. what I mean and like you know, it's um. I'm gonna. I'm after losing my train of thought there. I, I was going to butt in there anyway yeah. because let's say if me and Timmy, right, we've been through the mill as I said earlier on, and we're in a privileged position now where we're educated and we're trying to give back. But let's say we did a social work degree, we would not get a job. No, that. That's yeah. very disheartening and it's very disappointing because 
you have a lot of people out of touch with reality of yeah. living in these areas and they come in and they make clinical judgments because they have no empathy. They can't be mm. in your shoes. They don't know what it's like to have. And sometimes they overreact. Yeah. And, and I can see they might come in and go, oh my God, this, this place is blah, blah, blah. And you're going, actually, this is actually the quiet road. Yeah, this exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the judgment calls you make are a little greyer, a little niche, or a little more insightful. Like, I mean, working in the homeless services, I really seen that you had well-meaning people who cared, right? But they came from backgrounds that didn't experience what we had experienced or what the lads had experienced. And I'm saying lads because it was mostly men mm. um, in the homeless sector when I when I started out. And you would see people being turned away or put out a hustle for using heroin in their room, right? And I used to be baffled. I used to go. I was with you when we assessed him when that person came in. He goofed off the whole way through the assessment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? Why are we putting him out? He was like, this is why people are homeless. They're homeless because they're in addiction. They have mental health issues. Yeah. And as soon as they show you any signs of that, you want to put them out of hostel. Mm. Where's the logic in that? But they're, they're afraid. Yeah. They're actually afraid. Like, I mean, I'd see people having like mental health episodes within the hostels. Like there was one guy I remember and they were like, he was only given the bed and they're already warning all the staff now in the last hostel. He da, 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 da. So they were all mm. backing off. So I'm straight out and you're trying to pebble at a pigeon or something in, in, in the portrait. And I was like, yeah, oh fucking. Rah, rah, rah. And he was like, what? And I was like, the two of us had this big fucking fight in the doorway about the pigeon. And I was asking, well, do you think that pigeon can feel? Like, if you had to hit him with that, do you think he can feel that? And this, we got into this big philosophical conversation then about what animals can and can't feel, about pain, emotion. And it was kind of heightened and I was shouting and he was shouting. And then I went back in and the next day I got called into the manager's office, right? And this guy then really took to me, like, do you know what I mean? Everyone else was afraid of him. Because he had he had schizophrenia, he was triggered by certain colours. I just asked him, what colours? What colour what colour clothes should I not wear in here? He says, just don't ever wear red. And I'm like, <laughs> I'll make sure I do that. But everybody else is hushing in the fucking about, yeah. you know, and not engaging with him. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you want to create a monster, well then that's what you do. If you want someone to react, whisper in the corners, acknowledge that they know you are all avoiding him. Because you are afraid he's going to have some sort of violent outburst because of some history you've read on a computer of some last hostel he yeah. was in. Without any context of who might have triggered anything in him, how he's been minded in his trauma, you know, what actually, you know, when when is the schizophrenia at its most heightened, you know, learn and understand about his, his mental health. But instead they would, like, they called me and I got scolded, like, yeah. for engaging in a debate about the pigeon. Yeah. And I'm like, come on. And I think that that's what the problem is. I'm not afraid to walk into someone's. And I think that none of us that have experienced lives where they can be unpredictable like that. You're ready for the unpredictableness. You understand mm. trauma. You're not really afraid to approach the hard subjects. Yeah. You know, they were all in there trying to fucking like. Yeah. I remember I was working in homeless services here in Cork too. And my first day in the job, this, this girl overdosed, right? Now I'd seen a million overdoses in my day. It was grand and all cool to go through the protocol, whatever. 
And the day after was a staff like, fuck it, James, you walk around there. No, he was anonymous at the time, yeah. India, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, if you want any fucking new no, do you know how many overdoses I used to roll like that on my own with a paramedic and loudspeaker down an alley or something, do you know? He's just stayed. Yeah. Me trying to convince people to stay when someone not no, stay. But I have loads of charges. Stay yeah. till the ambulance get there and then let it. Or else you find as well, a lot of them would, a lot of staff would be afraid of travellers. Yeah, don't forget travellers in, yeah. in homeless mm-hmm. services. Yeah. I'm not letting him in or I'm not going up. But I'm well used to travellers because we yeah. grew up with travellers. Yeah. My wife is from a traveller yeah. family herself. Yeah. There's no, it's all xenophobia. It's just a fear. Yeah, totally. Because, but like, and, and if I'm going up then and I'm chatting with the traveller, no, might be heightened. But he's heightened like a settled person would be heightened. Exactly. He's not like I know. Hercules. Yeah. He's not the Hulk when he gets heightened. He's still yeah. a human. And I go up and I be chatting to him because there's no fair way would you be fair for love them just people like But I think else. if you keep if you keep placing your own fears on people, you nearly create something in that person yeah. to react. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you act I think people create the environment for people yeah. to lash out and I think it's so unfair. It's such a power play, like do you know what I mean? Because yeah you have so much power as a worker to put them out and they have no power, but yet you're afraid of them. But yet you keep making decisions on their day, whether they have a bed, where they go, where they eat, if they yeah. eat, you know, but yet you're afraid of them. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's a horrible atmosphere to yeah. be in, isn't it? Can, yeah. I, can I bring you, up, bring you back to the small, the small bit there we were talking about um, not being able to get a job in Toastland here, just yeah. seeing stuff like that with convictions. But it's not just there. There's loads of places. Yeah. They'll just, um, they'll filter you out of applications if you have a conviction and the other five candidates don't. And I know you, you've done great work in the Shannon, but do you, do you meet a lot of resistance when you're trying to get through a bill like that, that maybe the rest of the senators yeah. might meet, um, it might be close to their hearts? Um, I think we've done a huge amount of work in the last Shannon to bring people around. We've done a huge amount of research and I've tried to do my politics in a way that I could just get a bill drafted and table it, Right. And then make a big fuss. Oh, they voted against this bill, da 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 da. And I don't really see the point in doing that. Um, if I really want to get something passed, I need to put in the work before I table the bill. So I need to spend time trying to educate people, maybe that don't understand why the expungement of convictions is a problem, why they don't understand how it's like stopping people being able to move on with their lives, that people are punished forever that basically have their human rights removed forever mm. in terms of employment education even volunteering on their child's gag club or soccer or whatever going on a trip with the boxing club or whatever you know that you're getting guarded at every part of call now and so we spent a good year and a half um trying to um get gain enough insight research working with people who have convictions working with the Irish Penal Reform Trust and then also holding lots of briefings within Leinster House where we would invite TDs ministers and and their staff and senators to briefings to to educate them on what this meant and why this bill was important so we done all that groundwork first which meant we done quite well moving the bill through. And um, when I bring it back now, it'll be gone into its fifth stage. But the problem is when you have an election before you get it through all stages is yeah. I now have to, I have a lot of all these new people mm. to win over again, you know. And Charlie Flanagan, who's a Cork man, is he? No, he's, he's Leash. He's Leash. Yeah. So Charlie Flanagan um, was really supportive. 
you know and sometimes people surprise you you know you think like oh there's no way and you know yeah. it's going to be all about law and order or you know but he got it and we worked very closely with the justice department behind the scenes we never surprised them so if i was going to amend the bill i would ring them a few weeks before and say listen this i'm going to put this amendment through to the bill which yeah. actually makes it even more liberal or yeah. you know so I just I just try and work collaboratively so that everybody is part of the process, that it's not just my thing. Do you know what you I mean? Know, in an ideal scenario, what would your bill look like? What would the law look like for yeah. you? So basically, it would remove the cap on how many convictions could be spent. So endless convictions could be spent. And people's fear on that is that, um, oh, but like, what if you re-offend? And then it's like, well, it takes a year or two for it to come off. So if you're still re-offending you'll you'll keep it it'll, it will constantly show up but if you haven't offended for a year or two years like the, the, trying to get the smallest minimum amount of wait time so you're removing the seven-year threshold and you're also introducing proportionality so if you were only given probation or a particular fine or a particular really small sentence well then you shouldn't be waiting as long as the person that maybe done 12 months you know, maybe there's a, a six month period or a year. I haven't got the proportion table in yeah. my head. But so it's kind of looking at proportionality. But it means then that you have numerous chances to stop offending. So it means you stop judging people on the many offences they have and you judge them on the fact whether they're not offending. Mm-hmm. So you look at that bit. You look at, are these not offending? Okay, well then we can remove the convictions. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um I think oh, it could be yeah. a great incentive yeah. for somebody trying to go straight as well. Somebody totally. coming into recovery. Do you know yeah. what? If I Give stick some, it out, if I mm. stick it out, I'll actually be rewarded yeah. at the end of this because I might get a fresh start. I'm totally like yeah. I have friends in recovery with PhDs and they can't get I jobs. Know. They might. They, some of my friends have said to me the worst thing they ever done was get an education when they got when they came when they yeah. got off drugs because they're they're more miserable and depressed now, understanding how the system is stacked against them than they were when they were completely oppressed by it and mm. didn't realize mm. how much the machine of society was kind of locking them out. But mm. that awareness and then still being locked out yeah. is kind of depressing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to move on. Sorry, James. Sorry, and just to move on with your life, you know, um, say, for instance, you no, know, someone like me or James or anybody else to get uh, sober and start to be, begin to change all their behaviours and going down the route of education. It's and you're six or seven years down the line and you get your degree or your, your master's or whatever and you want to go into a line of work. And you, and then you hit this wall, spying bang on, and you're told you can't have the job. Yeah. You know, and you're saying, what was the whole point? What like? was the point in it? Mm. What, was, what the was the point? point? Yeah. And you nearly want to go, well, why the fuck am I sober? Do you know what I mean? So you then start looking like, there's uh, no wonder. Yeah. You know, but the, that would be part of the bill as well. We'd actually ban the box. It would make yeah. it, it, we wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to ask on an application form whether somebody has a conviction. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you can't ask them later on in the process, but you can't ask them on the point of the application form, which means that you at least get to the interview point so you can yeah. actually talk about your skills, talk about your education, da 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 da. Yeah. Um, and then it's also, I'd love a socioeconomic discrimination piece in it, and we've, we, we have done that somewhat, but it's about being, um, even if your conviction is spent and sometimes it still comes up. So if you're discriminated against based on the fact that you have a conviction and your conviction is irrelevant to mm. the job that you're applying for, well, then there should be a, gr- a case there on the grounds of discrimination. If you're perfectly qualified for the job and they were going to offer you the job or something and then the guard event came back. 
So if your stuff was for robbing, for shoplifting, but you're going into work in like, you know, social work or some tech company or whatever, what relevance has any of that got to the fact that you're doing this job? So the only things that should ever be taken into account is like, you know, obviously they have like the, the like violent crimes and multiple violent crimes. And I still have an issue with that as well, because sometimes we get involved in violence. Um, there's a context. With it. There's a context as well. So there's like, it's very hard. There's also the cases that I, I, I it'll probably be years before I try and address them. because I don't think people are ready to have that discussion yet. But like somebody that commits manslaughter at like 13 or 14 years of age, um, it could have been that they were in a fight. It definitely was, it wasn't the intent of the argument. Mm. They, they're not even, like they're only children. They haven't fucking full, fully formed. It's, yeah. it's impulsive. It's reactionary. And they never have a chance to apply for that to be removed in any shape or form to travel, even though they were only like minors, you know, and maybe they never even offended again, you know, yeah. ever, yeah. you know. So there's all these different really hard contexts that, them conversations are not having and yeah. yeah but going back to your original question about how hard it is to get that bill in it seemed like at the time when i was bringing it in the last shannon and um, people understood why it needed to happen and people listened and people get it and it makes sense and you know recidivism is so high like you, if you want to reduce recidivism you need to give people a way to be able to live their lives and you need to be able to get them to when they get their masters or their yeah. degree to be able to or even some people are guard vetted for a social work degree so they won't sometimes won't even get that far yeah you know i remember when i started out in my youth and community degree i had a conviction for drugs from 2014 in april and i started bachelor's degree in september 2014 and it's um, 50% of it is in college and 50% on placement, you know. Found it very hard to get a placement. placement. My, now, the conviction was from a few months before, but defence actually happened in 2012. Exactly. And yeah. I was after doing a ton of work on myself in nearly a year in treatment, nearly a year aftercare, and I meetings every day. I was a different person, but they didn't care. And the paper, the conviction was from 2014, so I don't know if there was ever a way, and even though this is not what we should be aiming for, but if there was a... And the guard of it and the, the, the date of the crime, the crime. Yeah. The we do have discussions about that and there is a few like there's there's a lot of people when I start working on this contacted me because they were refused their placements Um, I had a young girl from Limerick I had a few different colleges people ringing me from and, and me then trying to find the placements dealing with the colleges but what we need to do is raise the awareness and understanding of employers that they don't, they're making the discriminate the, the mm. discriminatory um decision. The guard of vetting form might say one thing, but you can ignore that. Of course you can. Yeah. It's not a. <laughs> yeah. it's not Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Still no, decision. no. So you should get people like people should have an understanding and be able to listen and let someone make their case as to like you saying it was twenty twelve. I've done this and that, and they should be able to take that on board and make the right decision mm-hmm. based from there. Well, people are just going no. And it's like never understanding the context, never giving a person an opportunity to mm. to discuss the matter and really just excluding people. So I think a whole, whatever about the legislation, there needs to be a whole body of work about educating employers about being able to make smart decisions yeah. and I think, when they come up against this thing. And I think that's a big motivation for this podcast as well. Yeah. Like I know when Timmy was coming to the end of his degree, he just finished mm. in construction management. He was very insecure about, and he can speak for himself. Mm. But this is a way, and normally I'm down the television and doing this, but putting it all out there, this is who we are. We shouldn't be ashamed mm-hmm. of who we are. Mm-hmm. We were in survival mode a lot at the time, and we can't be judged in the same morality as somebody that has a father on a quarter. Yeah. Exactly, and, mm-hmm. and like, we've owned it. 
and we're trying to do as best we can now to move on and to be positive role models in our community and now it's up to the employer and everybody else to just meet us halfway. Yeah. We can and I mean, so you, can, you can only be socially and morally responsible if your basic needs are met. And if your basic needs are met and you're working from a lower social foundation than everybody else, well, then that society would try and hold you to this really high standard of morality and, 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 and social conscience and all of that. But yet people that do have access to the world, to education, make bad decisions all the time. And you're judged and they're not judged with the same fucking morality stick that you are. You only have to look at the court system and the prison system to see that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it, 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 the, the administrative side of, of how the law laws are implemented and class bias is is massive. Do you know what I mean? Even in relation to spent convictions and also in relation to like to drugs offences. Because yeah. yeah. you're more likely to have a drugs offence if you're from a working class community. And that's just because you're more likely to come up against a guard as you walk out of your house. Of course you are. You know? Even like in UCC here for Rag Week, this outside of the city next to UCC is chaos. Like the students go mental and the residents have their heart broke over there. There could be riots over there, hundreds of people born and wheelie bins. The guards will come in and move people on. Bonfire night or Halloween night, the same thing happens up here. There's paddy wagons being filled and yeah. the courts are being filled. Yeah. And it's there's even if a student does, and it doesn't happen all the time, even if a student does get arrested, the case is made before the judge in the district court. Oh, he's doing a degree and he's going to be an engineer. As you're going to ruin these prospects, just give him a chance. But if you're from Nakhnehini or Tala, so, oh, he's not going to mount anything anyway, give him the conviction. And it's, it's not explicit, but it happens all the time. Totally. And it's we're policed differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so such a waste of time as well bringing yeah. people to court and costs of solicitors and you know, you know it, even yeah. we we spoke with Philly McMahon there a few weeks ago he speaks very highly of you actually yeah. Yeah. but uh, he was telling us it's 340 grand a year to keep a young person in Orbiston mm-hmm. and 90 odd grand a year to keep somebody in, in prison Joe, yeah. imagine what you do with that, that early on yeah. you know? and look look how many of them charges are drug related for small small, small amounts yeah. of drugs like yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're sending people to prison and um, we're just wasting funds that could be put into addiction centres and, and, and other different yeah. even, like I, I'm a big for me in a personal level I think um, if we need if, if we're there to if we want to put money into something put it into the the kids, yeah, the younger kids. Like you if know. you think of every man that's in prison, if they had have had 90 grand invested in them mm-hmm. as a young child for their journey through life, I at this stage, I would pay people to go to college and go to school. <laughs> I would take all those 90 grand yeah. and I would take the poorest communities and I'd pay the families yeah. for getting their kids to school and college. I'd pay the kids to go to college. Do you know what I mean? Like I would literally finance it and incentivize it. And gradually that... that the, the people then realize like then you change a whole generation like so you have to change a whole generation holistically the whole family do you know what i mean so that the intergenerational stuff doesn't just keep repeating itself and yeah. you need to be able like one person can transcend their class but it's only when you can transcend a whole community do you really make any real societal change so i would take all that money that's in the justice system that's in the legal aid that's in the prison system and how you could actually invest that at a community level to be able to change a whole generation of prospects for young people and their families you know i think yeah. like it just makes so much more sense yeah. but yeah. It, that like i don't know that doesn't keep anyone in their job do you know what I mean? And people yeah. start fulfilling their own needs um, when they work in particular sectors as well. You yeah. know, so like you know, poverty is 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 in a, is an earner. Yeah. 
mm. for a lot of people and poverty is a sector yeah. you know and that's that's really sad to think about that you know I know and look just before we finish up because we're on an early an hour now and I don't want the battery going dead in the camera <laughs> but, um, I know you had a child when you were quite young yeah um, if you had any bit of advice for maybe a teenager or that's pregnant that have a child at the yeah. moment and mm. uh, I don't know they might think that their prospects in life aren't great yeah. Have you any kind of few words for them, or maybe yeah, parents? I, I think um, I think accepting a person's situation. I think what I learned from my own parents was they they accepted the situation very very quickly and they rode in behind me. I know that everybody is in that position and their family situation might be different or they might you know um, but I think if I look at my daughters now, one who's thirteen and one who's twenty, and even though it's not my idea for them to get pregnant right now, and I'd like them to get their degrees and all that kind of stuff, I think I would have to do what my mom and dad do and go right. This is the situation. How do we make the best of this? This is the reality, and we just need to support and help. And I think, I, I think that's that's more of a message to families about rallying around young people to support them. Um. But I think for a young mother, I think it, it's it's hard because it's hard to have one single universal message when you know everyone's situation is so different. But for me, obviously, engaging in education on Ankasan at 16 was a huge help. But they also had childcare. So it made it easier for me. So I think I don't think I can give the, 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 the young person a message that would make sense to everyone other than them knowing that they can do what they want to do my message would be more to the community and society to actually make sure that there's places within communities that young women can go and have access to childcare while they learn or while they work you know what I mean so I think it's too much responsibility for me to tell a young girl to do this or that if that doesn't exist so I would more put the put the put the responsibility back on society and you know mm. the environment to be able to create space for young women to succeed. And I think my story reflects that when you have that, that that can happen. You know, mm. and Ankasan and my parents' support was huge in me being able to give myself enough foundation that I at least didn't feel like I was sinking or that I was alone, mm. even though I was still messed up. Mm. I think that's the, do you know what? I think that's the thing. Yeah. People herald me as if I've done this amazing thing. My my kids' lives wasn't wasn't easy. Mm. I might now be able to sit here and talk about our lives, but it wasn't easy. Um, I was still traumatised. I still felt a huge amount of anger right up until I was 30. I still cursed and screamed and shouted around the house and made mistakes. And my kids would sometimes be crying and going, oh, ma, stop, calm down. You know, so I think that would be my message is that there's not this one idea of what a mother should be and can be. And if you've experienced hardship or trauma, you need to allow yourself to heal while also parenting. It's very hard to, it's very hard and it's, it's, it's difficult to parent without shame when you're also struggling with mental health and I think yeah. I think that is the biggest thing I can tell someone is that no mother is perfect and you know if if you were like if, if they're like me and they came with all the baggage that I came with um, it's taken a long time for me to shed the shame of me not being able to be what I thought a mother was supposed to be and provide but I still managed to get us here yeah. and it was who I was as a working class woman that done that not any other idea of what I thought I was supposed to be yeah. you know Brilliant. do you know that section of your life and just before we finish up I think this is important do you know when you were in that on uh, is it on yeah. yeah. Um I think meditation became yeah. a big part of your life and that 
that's that's what saved me as well yeah. because I, I'm not a person for retaining information and understanding it properly. But when I when I went down the route of meditation and I was able to instead of going into my head, I was able to feel all these emotions coming up, all that stuff that was blocked down. That's when my life changed. So anytime I was having a bad day and the negative thinking came on, I could grasp it immediately and feel it. Whereas before I'd go down. Like yeah, that and was, act on it and react yeah. on it. I think meditation was introduced to me very young and I, at 15, 16, I probably resisted it a little bit then. Yeah. But I was curious about it. But it was probably, like I said, I was still 15 and I was still a mother. I was still like, what are these fucking bleeding weirdos trying to have me do? Sit here meditating dopes. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I was still just a young one from talent, like yeah. trying to be a man. Like, do you know what I mean? Resisting anything good that was offered to me, yeah. like, but still torn it up, yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, but meditation and visualization, I think, was a really yeah, big one for key. me. And I think sometimes I say to myself, Jesus, I must be a bit of a narcissist. Am I like, you know, I just keep going, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a film. And it's like, you've never even like done any of those things or studied any of those things. But what like, and I was like, no, Lynn, you're not just someone that thinks they can do anything and be brilliant at everything. It's just that idea of visualization going, well, do you know what? I'm going to give it a try. Do you know what I mean? And, and it kind of succeed. And so I think the meditation was powerful for me, but the, the visualization piece was the, was the biggest, um, the biggest thing that I introduced, I think, into my life as a teen. Yeah. yeah. That was your, your safe place. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So we're going to finish up now, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks a million. Thank you um, very much, Lynn. It's been fantastic. I really enjoyed um, listening to you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Finally, I watched you from mainly Twitter or uh, read your book and everything. So it was, it's great to meet you in person. Um, very nice and I'm sure the people watching will get a laugh from it yeah. um, and thank you for representing the likes of myself and Timmy yeah, and you. fighting the cause for people with convictions and people mm-hmm. that's on drugs um, and for being a voice for the working class in the Shannon so thanks a million for thank that you. Um, and to the people that's watching thanks a million for watching and supporting us um, and for any of any all those people that contacted us looking for help that was struggling I hope you're doing okay today yeah. Um, and if you're not get in touch we link in with more supports um, we're not therapists or counsellors but we know a lot of people who are um, and, and, and we can be a hub of information for you so get in touch if you're struggling get in touch with us with your comments and feedback and we'll see you next week Slash. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.